to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for an emergency conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Emergency because I'm a very proud emergency physician. On a recent flight to Atlanta for the 2023 National Rx Summit, I sat at the window, leaning my head on the side, being antisocial with nearby passengers and thinking to myself, I'm just going to endure the flight by listening to a podcast. Mid-flight, I heard an announcement. Is there a doctor or medical provider on the plane? I recognize anxiety in the flight attendant's voice. It's the same tone that I hear from my nurses in the emergency department when they say, Dr. Lev, we need you in room five. I know something's going on. I immediately jumped over the two people sitting next to me in a gymnastic move, uh, hopping over in a hurdle and headed to the front of the plane. The flight attendant said she heard a thump in the bathroom and I saw an elderly woman laying unconscious in the bathroom. I reached my hand to grab her wrist. It was cold, clammy, and a very weak pulse. And with over 35 years of experience in treating 100,000 patients, I knew her blood pressure was really low. We need to get her laying down, I told the crew. And a strong man volunteered and placed the unconscious woman on the ground by the door of the aircraft. Can you bring me the medical kit, I asked. We don't have one, I was told. We have oxygen. What about a blood pressure cuff? That they did have. I sat on the floor of the plane with my hand on my patient's wrist, monitoring her pulse as she slowly came to, and my fingers acting as a monitor felt the heart beat stronger and knew that her blood pressure improved. Hi, I'm Dr. Lev. What's your name? Glenda Watson, she said. Hi, Glenda. You're going to be okay. I did my emergency department thing, asking her questions and making the diagnosis of syncope. She fainted. It could be any number of reasons. And I told the crew and Glenda that she will need to be met by the paramedics when we land. I travel a lot, and through the years, I've responded to many flight emergencies over a dozen times. I think I'm a magnet to these disasters. Just this year, I responded to Glenda, not her real name, to a lady who broke her arm in a flight to Vienna, and a lady with pneumonia and low oxygen on a flight back from Israel. These incidents renew my love for emergency medicine. What a gift to be able to help during a crisis, bring confidence and security that a person is in good hands. She's going to be okay, I told the crew and anxious passengers who showed anxiety in their eyes. 
When I got off the plane with Glenda, the crew and passengers shared glances of real appreciations and smiles. I needed that boost of gratitude to tell myself again how much I love being an emergency physician. I needed it because during my last shift, a patient agitated on drugs, threw an object in my face and hit me while yelling a long string of explicitives that I won't repeat here. I wasn't really injured, but I did feel some pain to my face. And it's not the first time I was assaulted at work. I walked out of the room, took a deep breath, and did something that my husband taught me to do. I vowed to be extra nice to the next patient so I won't become jaded and an unfeeling doctor just because of this one bad experience. But I did wonder whether I'm really getting too old for this job. The experience on the plane reminded me that emergency medicine is what I love to do, and I have a few good years still left in me to work on the front lines. The emergency department is the canary in the coal mine for today's society, for our woes, and our woes are the trifecta of homelessness, substance use disorders, and mental health. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Love. I appreciate the opportunity to ask a question for your podcast and powering through some rough shifts with you in the emergency department. My name is Janelle Sauerbeer, and I'm an emergency medicine resident who works at various hospitals as part of my training. I noticed in almost all the hospitals I work at that the emergency department beds have patients waiting for many hours, even days, for psychiatric beds. It seems inefficient and not the best logistics to have emergency beds used for mental health patients. I know your podcast is about drugs, but a significant number of mental health patients are also on drugs. Is anyone looking into real solutions to this problem? Thank you, Janelle. You are young in your career in emergency medicine, and I feel your passion and devotion to your career. I hope you have 34 years into it, like me, still feel the same and realize that you save lives and make a difference every single shift. It's very appropriate to answer your question that I invite one of the mothers of emergency medicine, one of my own mentors and my idol in the field of emergency medicine, a brilliant academic and forefront leader in our profession, Dr. Sandy Schneider. Dr. Schneider is an associate executive director and past president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. She was the founding chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Rochester back when becoming a Department of Emergency Medicine was a fight that she won within the medical establishment. She became president of the Society of the Academic Emergency Medicine, president of the Association of the Academic Chairs of Emergency Medicine, and president of the American Colleges of Emergency Medicine. And after there were no more organizations that she could become president of, she became an executive to the College of Emergency Medicine. And along the way, she wrote articles, book chapters, and she remains and always will be an educator in the field. To learn more about Dr. Sandy Schneider and the American College of Emergency Physicians, please check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Sandy Schneider, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Sandy, I always look for excuses to have a conversation with you because you always leave me inspired and I just love hanging out with you. Hey, hey the feeling is totally mutual. And thanks again. This is, it's always fun to have conversations with you. Yes. And uh, yeah, and I always learn something new every time. Um, so Sandy, one of my all-time mentors in emergency medicine, and it's perfect that I have a new young uh, emergency doctor who has a question for for you. Um, Her name is Janelle Sauerbeer. She's an emergency medicine resident. She rotates at multiple different emergency departments, and she notices, like we all do, that we have a lot of mental health patients who wait hours and days for beds. It's something that happens at her various hospitals that she rotates. 
And um, she says, you know, this is high truth on drugs and addiction, but there is a correlation. Um, there's an association. A lot of patients are there with mental health problems and drugs. And her question is, is the ER the best place for these patients? And what are some of the solutions that we're having? So the answer, the first answer is no. And the emergency department is by far not the best place to keep these patients for any length of time. I, I can't imagine what it's like to be uh, disoriented, to be confused, to be upset, and then to be put in the chaos of the emergency department, which quite frankly, most of us who work there, you know, are happy to get out of it after eight to 12 hours. You know, it's like, whew, let me just chill a little bit. <clears throat> so why do they come? So first off, the emergency department is the best place to take care of a patient uh, who's in crisis, who has no other options. What are the other options? Well, a lot of places are starting mobile crisis units that come right to the house, that talk to the family, that talk to the patient, that talk to the neighbors, that get everybody just kind of chilled down and quiet, and then uh, get a plan of care set for the patient so that they uh, can live in their house, uh, they can deal with the problems that are there, um, and they can uh, just get better, uh, get back on their medication, get started on medication, get connected to care. That's the best way to take care of patients. If that's not available, then the next best way is a psychiatric emergency department, an emergency department that just takes care of patients with mental health, substance use disorders. Those people are trained well. They have the right equipment. They have the right resources. But unfortunately, those are not very common. Uh, and we're hoping they get more common, but they're not very oh, common. Well, we have, we've had one in San Diego for many years, but it's just always full. This just doesn't have the capacity. Yeah. And that's the problem in the ED as well. When they come to the, they come to the emergency department, the best people to come are when there's a real threat, when they really, when they're <clears throat> tried to commit suicide, when they may have other um, injuries that we can take care of. But then part of the problem in the emergency department is the people we get have uh, haven't don't have the mobile crisis, you know, don't have the psychiatric emergency department. And that means we don't have a lot of resources at times either. And so we scramble to get those resources for the patients and we find them. But you just mentioned they're full. Um, and so unfortunately, patients wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And, and we so know. Go ahead. I, I know that you're working on on solutions, and this is not a solution that'll be solved by the American College of Emergency Physicians, right? This is a uh, a society problem. We need we need psychiatric beds. We have more mental health patients. We have more volume, less capacity. Um, or although mm -hmm. I think that actual numbers of psychiatric beds is actually increased, but it's still not enough. So I know that you're working and collaborating outside the College of Emergency Physician to bring solutions. Yeah. So the solution, you know, as usual, comes down to money. Um, people who have mental illness usually don't have insurance. Hard for them to keep a job. You know, maybe they've lost their job. And if without insurance, then they rely on some type of public assistance to pay. And unfortunately, public assistance doesn't pay very much for mental health. And so mental health hospitals, often private, uh, simply don't take those patients because they don't have to, and they don't pay very well. And so now you take this limited number of beds that you just described and make it even smaller. 
and and trying to find a bed, for example, for a child who's on has mental illness and doesn't have insurance, it's impossible. And that leads us to the fact that there are children right now, we know of three of them, who have spent more than 200 days in the emergency department waiting for a bed, one of which is way over a year. Now, those are just the ones we know about. And I'm sure there are many, many more of these. But the fact is that these are very difficult to place children. And there there are no, you know, we, we can't create those places. So one of the solutions we have is finding another place other than the emergency department. Okay, maybe the mental health system can't take them right now, but the emergency department shouldn't be the one that's labeled, you know, this that has this because we're, I mean, come on, if you've watched the movies, anybody who worked, you've worked the ED on it, you know, the ED is crazy. I mean, it's chaotic, it's loud. It's crazy. It, it costs lives. And I'll, I'll tell you a, a personal story. I have a really good friend um, in his 50s who went to the emergency department um, uh, during the pandemic with chest pain, young man with chest pain. He had some EKG changes. There was no room in the back. He sat in the waiting room. Four hours later, his wife gets a call because they didn't let um, relatives in the emergency department, right? She gets a call from the medical examiner. And Ami died in the waiting room because there's, and I went to the emergency department. It wasn't my emergency department. Um, and I sat there waiting for his body to pick up, you know, which takes several hours. And I just sat there and I saw what was going on in the emergency department. It was full of mental health patients. And it made me very mad because our society values that over Ami's life. You know, if he was in a bed, he could have been cardioverted or shocked or his life may have been saved. Um, so it affects all of us when emergency department beds are, are taken up and don't create capacity to, you know, people like Ami who has chest pain. Yeah. And, you know, I talked a little bit about the insurance. Um, I know of, of a family uh, a friend um, who was about 18, went to the emergency department here in the great state of Texas, as they call it, um, and was kept in the emergency department for 14 days waiting for a bed. When we found out uh, that she was there because she was an adult, um, we arranged for private pay and she was in a hospital bed in two hours in a psychiatric bed in two hours. Wow. Yeah, it's, it is, it's tragic and it costs all of society. Um, I think our, the solution, I know the surgeon general is meeting about this. I want to create solutions, but I think we need to build capacity to offload. Yeah. So, so ASEP, the American College of Emergency Physicians, for those of you who don't understand my little shorthand, uh, ASEP wrote a letter to the president and asked him to create a summit on boarding, um, not just psychiatric boarding, which is uh, the probably the biggest problem, but all boarding, because all boarding affects all patients, like you mentioned, your friend. And uh, we have not yet heard from the president, but we are going forward trying to build um, uh, a summit that brings together the federal partners, state partners, and local hospitals, because this has to be fixed at all three levels. You have to fix the hospital. You have to make room for the patient somewhere, but then you have to find the right amount of um, uh, finances and support for that hospital to be able to take care of the patients. Right. 
Well, invite the Surgeon General because I know he's interested. I just heard a, uh, um, a group that's meeting with him uh, about that as well, public health officers. So Yeah, and we had created, what we also did was put stories um, on this to, to show the president how bad the problem was. And, you know, I've done emergency medicine 40 years, so not much gets to me, all right? But when I read that stories, those stories, oh, they just, it was just brutal. Uh, that letter is on our website if anybody has, um, wants to read it. But I will tell you, uh, you know, it, don't wear mascara, okay, because you're going to cry. Tell us again how to watch those videos. Uh, it's 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 a letter. It's actually not a letter. It's on the ASEP uh, ASEP.org website, and just um, actually just put in search for boarding, and you'll come up with the president's. Uh, it'll be a letter to the president, uh, along with some other material there. <clears throat> but the story. I, I don't even call it boarding anymore. I call it living in the emergency department. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly those children, <clears throat> excuse me, clearly those children who've been there for a year have been living there. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's it's really terrible because those those children have sitters, people who watch them 24-7, go to the bathroom with them. Um, one person told me that uh, who's housing one of those children said that they do let the child out once a week for an hour to play outside. I. I I'm sorry, but, um, you know, we, we treat criminals better than this. And this right. child is by no, no means. You didn't a have a mental health issue. You'll end up with one. <laughs> not much time in our emergency departments. I was going to say there are some shifts. I go home and I think I have a mental illness. Right. It's hard. Right. Exactly. And that's a very good analogy that when we leave, I'm like, okay. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. You have a, you know, all of us have that sort of way we, you know, decompress. But can you imagine just doing that 24-7 for a year? Oh, my goodness. Sad. So sad what we do. So let's talk about some drug and addiction issues. Uh, the X waiver. We X the X waiver. Uh, I'm I'm very proud of that. I, I think I, I, I led a campaign out of ONDCP, really changed the views 180 degrees. Um, thanks for the pandemic that created uh, an urge. And a really the American College of Emergency Physician um, was on board all the way with that. So I want to say a special thank you to Laura Wooster and Jeff Davis, who, who last minute were, you know, writing letters and I have to like, no, 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 write it this way. So, <laughs> and they would change yeah, it. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for your work on this. I, I never quite understood the X waiver. We can, you and I can prescribe drugs and use drugs in the emergency department that are really dangerous. Okay. And so what happened here is we had a medication that has risk, no question about it, like any other drug, but we were required to take eight hours of training on using this drug. And I got to tell you, I didn't do eight hours of training required on drugs that do a lot worse uh, than treat addiction. Yeah, um, opiates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can prescribe opiates, but to pres I can't prescribe the, the uh, you know, the way to treat it. I think that's it's wonderful that that's gone. And now any uh, physician can write this drug just like any other drug. And what this, you know, we're learning so much about addiction. I, I just this past week, uh, they isolated or not isolate, but identified a gene um, that was associated with addiction. And we now know addiction isn't something that people choose to do. Um, they shouldn't be, you know, like it's not their fault. It, you know, there's something that is in their brain, the ready. Disease of the brain, right? It's yeah, a, it's a disease of the brain. 
and we should treat it like it. And that's what this these uh, me- the current medications are. They're not giving them opiates. They're treating the brain disease. Yeah. Um, and I'm just so pleased that we can now start using this drug more widely. One other thing that happened a couple of weeks ago was that naloxone or Narcan uh, is now going over the counter. And that I think will be a huge way to save lives um, because, you know, if if individuals are using um, and use too much and have uh, an effect, saving their life is the only way to make them uh, cure their addiction. You can't cure addiction in somebody who's dead. And so saving a life is so important. Right. Right. Otherwise, it's it's a game over. Yeah. Um, and actually, so um, I just saw yesterday, I I hung out with Dr. Steve Anderson, our uh, prior uh, California ASIP, uh, uh leader, and he's doing a naloxone project in order to have naloxone free to be distributed in emergency departments um, all over the country. We had a supply from the county in our emergency department, but I think we ran out within two weeks. <laughs> yes. Not enough. <laughs> And, you know, people have been urging, uh, you know, uh, doctors, if they write a prescription for opiates, to just write a prescription for Narcan. Um, now you can pick it up over the counter. So I think that's even better. And just, you know, I remember when I had a baby, and that was a long time ago, um, you know, they they told us we should keep Ipecac in the house just in case the baby uh, ate something bad. They don't do that anymore. Uh, but, you know, you... They, but this is like that. I mean, yeah. people ought to have probably should have some naloxone. That's yeah. a good that's a good point. Um, and uh, the eight hour education, we got rid of it. Yeah. Congress put it back in. And I feel like the, the people who write laws are not clinicians. And I don't know if they even talk to clinicians and have a very short memory that mandated government education created the opioid epidemic in the first place. Right. There was eight hours of mandated education on physicians to prescribe opiates. People don't remember that. And I have taken those eight hour courses and they're not the best. Um, So I was really disheartened, but they, they eased it up a bit. It's not as bad as it it sounds. Right. And I think it's been involved with that. Yeah. And we really pushed hard for this. So yeah. And this eight hour thing, it, it's uh, quite frankly, it's total nonsense. Again, I don't need eight hours of education to do most of anything that I, you know, I mean, to intubate a patient or anything else. Um, but what it is, is if you, if you're a resident or you've graduated from a residency within the last five years, you don't need to take it. Everyone else who doesn't have an X waiver already has to prove, no, excuse me, has to attest that they've done eight hours of education around something that has to do with pain control or um, uh, um, addiction treatment. Uh, we have a ton of resources on the ASEP.org website, and they're out, they're all over the places. The AMA has them, um, and they're all free. And basically, you take them and attest that you take them. You've taken them. So I already have my eight hours just because. I already do. You know, I was. Well, you were in the X waiver. I I did the first. Uh, I did the opening remarks for the very first X waiver course for the American College of Emergency Physicians, and you were there. Yeah. And I, was, I was there. I did a for you. Yeah, <laughs> I only took four hours. I had to leave, so I had to pick oh. up my other four hours. But oh. you know, there's it, it's reasonably easy, 
And it's actually, you can pick what education you want. So you can pick high quality stuff as opposed to, not to say that you're, that, that X waiver training was excellent, but you know, you mentioned that sometimes we have to take this training then and the courses aren't really good, but now you can pick good courses and then you check off the box and you're done. And one time, one time in your life and you're done forever. Yeah. So of course they changed the rules. The other thing that Dr. Anderson talked about, he had a whole panel presentation at the National RX Summit about PACE certification. And so tell us about that. So, you know, when we were talking about um, dealing with pain in the emergency department, uh, one of my colleagues said, you know, part of the problem with this is it takes like two seconds to write a prescription for opiates. And it takes a lot longer to not to do something else, to to do an injection or to give a local anesthetic, something like that for the pain. And she said, we need a reason why the hospitals will go along with this. And literally together, we went accreditation hospitals like to be accredited. They like to be known for things. They like those blacks on the wall. They like to know that they're cutting edge. And so we created the pain and addiction care in emergency departments or PACE. Um, and basically hospitals can come in at any one of three levels. Uh, the first one is just you're not going to use opiates in your emergency department unless they're absolutely necessary. You're going to support the use of non-opiates by your emergency docs. And the highest level is you've got a, a ready access to addiction services and you're giving buprenorphine in the emergency department. And then there's a whole uh, grade between those uh, uh, two. Um, and, and if anyone out there <clears throat> is involved with a hospital, this is a great way to show your community that you're involved and a great way to improve and uh, your care and get the resources you need. So it's PACE. Again, I keep saying ASEP.org. Uh, sorry about that, ACEP.org. We'll have it in the show notes too. Thank you. Yeah, and so, you know, hearing you talk, I always get ideas, but the other thing that ASEP can do, I remember when I worked at ONDCP and even now they're really pushing ESBRIT screening and brief intervention um, referral to treatment. And um, primary care doctors can get paid. There's a CPT code for that, for them to screen their patients and send them to referrals when they're at risk for addiction. Um, so uh, incentives such as money um, really does that. If we think back, there was a period where every doctor in America was screening for tobacco because we got paid $5 for every patient we found that was a smoker and we referred them to treatment to stop smoking. Right. And if we had the same type of, it doesn't have to be much, the minimal incentive to have a discussion with the patient, screen for addiction and refer to treatment, it, that could go a long way. But there needs to be special code for that, um, not just for MAT, but for all drugs. Um, and there are barriers for physicians can't get reimbursed for that in the emergency department. They can only be do, do that in the clinic. So that's something that ASEP can work out because I think the, the, the government and this administration cares about that. Um, and they have to understand the barriers. I think that I think you're absolutely correct. And I think it would be very appropriate to do that. Um, while you were talking though, I was thinking about the fact that you know, we have been uh, pushed a lot to do a mandatory screening for suicide thoughts. Um, we know that in addition to the people who present who've tried to commit suicide or say they want to commit suicide, 
a lot of patients walk around with thoughts of suicide and are at risk. But the problem really is just one we've been talking about, and that's capacity. If we find somebody who is at risk of suicide but doesn't need to come in the hospital, there's often nowhere to send them. And um, just simply identifying that risk is great, but you need some kind of follow-up. Right. So I've been pushing um, my friends at SAMHSA and other places to, to try to find a way that we can set up a, a referral system, even by telephone, because that works. Yeah. And telephone yeah. works for mental health and it works for uh, substance use disorder. Yeah. And so something like a poison center only for suicides and mental health issues where you can call and say, hey, I got a patient here that needs follow up and then they'll follow it up. Most people think of the poison center as something you call and say, hey, my kid, you know, just ate a crayon. Um, But there's really the other side of that where the docs can say, hey, I got a kid here that ate a crayon and I'm sending him home. Can you call him tomorrow? Make sure he's okay." Yeah. So our poison centers are, at least in California, doing not exactly that. They're working with the National Clinical Consultation Center, the NCCC. I did a whole podcast with these amazing um, doctors and professionals. And you can call 24-7 and have a patient who's in withdrawal or have a complex addiction or you've never used buprenorphine before and you don't know how to use it. Um, and maybe this is a something that, that ASAP can promote, but it's available 24-7 in California. And it's available as, as a hotline. And the rest of the country, it's available Monday through Friday, 7 to 3, like a warm line. And they have a professional that'll help you uh, manage that patient. It's not exactly what you were saying as far as psychiatric referral, but as far as addiction that that is available. So as far as now we don't have the X waiver anymore, there's no excuse for any physician in the country to prescribe buprenorphine. And it's sometimes it's complex because patient also has alcoholism and methamphetamine and other medications. And what do I do? And, and they're also withdrawing and they took methadone. It could be very complex. So what you do, you call the hotline and you get some help. Right. I think that's an absolutely wonderful idea. Um, you know, we now have 988. So if you're feeling suicidal, you can just pick up the phone and dial 988 and you'll get to a, a, a suicide counselor, someone that will help you work through your problems. I think, though, we need that that other piece that the poison centers have and the one that you're just describing, which is a resource for doctors who may not do this every day. You know, right. maybe, you know, maybe that doc hasn't done buprenorphine for six months. Um, and, you know, it, and, and as you mentioned, it can sometimes be very complex. It can, it's not just straightforward. If it was straightforward, we wouldn't have to go to medical school. Right. And so we're going to connect after this podcast and I'll give you those resources because those are great resources for, for physicians. And when we're admitting patients to the hospital service, the admitting team sometimes, you know, are like, okay, how am I going to manage this? Um, and that, that could be helpful. Yeah. Very Um, good. Thank you. So we're, we're doing that and many emergency departments across the country are now <clears throat> doing addiction treatment induction in the in the emergency department. I think um, we provide a great service, but hopefully eventually we would offload that um, yeah. to the community so people like Ami can get a bed for his chest pain. Yes. Um, so as I think that, you know, we have to understand you know, um, the need to keep patients moving in the emergency department and not have everything refer that. Although 
we are America's safety net. So we're there 24 seven, no matter what, if, if necessary. Yeah, I, I sometimes think, you know, we we do it too well, because um, no matter what, um, the emergency department will handle it, no matter what they fling at us, we take it. Um, and, you know, that's part of being an emergency physician. That's why I love being an emergency physician. But on the other hand, you know, then we get into this, you know, state where, you know, especially with all the staffing shortages that we're having and closing of nursing homes and that type of thing, it it just is, it's overwhelming. Um, but at the it's same what time. what I said at the beginning of our, my podcast is that we are the canary in the coal mine for society's problems. And we've yeah. seen that over our long career, right? We we could tell you what, what we're struggling with as a country based on right. what we're seeing in the emergency department. And But, you know, for all that it has, for all the bad parts of being an emergency physician, like, you know, crowding and chaos, it's really the most fun job in the whole world. I can't think of anything that I would rather do. Um, yeah, it, it sucks sometimes. And yeah, it's really bad sometimes. But when you sit back and think, you know, holy crap, I just saved a life. Um, I just, you know, I mean, it's crazy. It's right. It's- and emergency physicians just need to be reminded of that and nurses too, because we're so in the thick of things that we don't even have time to think or breathe. But you're right. If you do, if you just take, talk to anybody else besides in the emergency department, you realize you there's not, you know, we make such a big difference. Yeah, it's um, it's incredible what we do and can do. And, you know, uh, the other one is, you know, if you're at on if you're on a plane and somebody says, you know, is there a doctor here? And like hands go up. I suggest to you, you look around and say, are any of you emergency docs? Because um, I, I stopped to take care of a patient one time and this guy came up, two guys came up from behind me and they said, you know, we're both doctors. And I said, I'm an emergency doc. And if, if you know me, I'm not very tall. So I stood up and tried to stand on my tiptoes because they were like six foot four or whatever. And the guy, the first guy says, hey, I'm an orthopod. He's all yours. And the second guy said to me, if this man is not having a baby, I will be of no use to you at all. But can we stay here and just pretend like we're helping because our wives think we know what we're doing? And I said, absolutely, sir. And they 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 uh, I ended up letting them lift the patient out of the seat and onto the ground for me because I wasn't going to do it. So, OK, Sandy, you read my mind because I recorded a preview to this show. And that's exactly the story that I gave because I was just <laughs> on the plane. <laughs> and sure enough, I'm going to Atlanta. Um, and, and I heard that panic, uh, of this, I could tell, I know that the sound of panic, you know, from the nurses, I know when it's like, it's, yep. I could tell when they really need me and where it's just whatever. Um, and, uh, I jumped over the seats, ran to the front and I can't tell you how many times that's happened. I think I'm a magnet to the, I, I have, it's happened to me as well. And every time there's a story, because every time there's like, you know, someone who, who like pushes me aside and I'm like, you, you know, and then I have to push them aside or, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just been, but that's who you want. You want us um, because there's not much of anything that we can't right. at least start and figure out for the yeah. first few you minutes. You know what to do. And, yeah. uh, and we got this and we love doing it. And after an hour, you know, you want to, you probably don't want to see us anymore. You want to see the real, <laughs> another specialist, the the person who understands your specific thing, but we're the one that gets that specialist in and keeps you alive until they're there. Right. 
Let's talk surveillance. The CDC is doing surveillance. That's the last time I think we talked together. You wanted to get that type of surveillance in California. I actually checked their map right before we talked and we're not there yet. So that's annoying. But I tell know. us how ASEP is helping the CDC. So the CDC, um, after 9-11, uh, they created something called the National Syndromic Surveillance Program. And basically they get de-identified uh, data from all of the emergency departments that are participating in the country. Uh, I'll get to California in a second. And they look at that data to give them information about how many patients have flu, how many patients have COVID. Uh, but they also look at other things. They look at, uh, they monitor gunshot uh, wounds, uh, both intentional and non-intentional. Um, they look at um, uh, overdose patients. Um, they can look for outbreaks of other diseases. One of the ones that we're trying to get some um, optics on is diarrhea. Now, I know you, you know, you, you know this. Uh, patients come to the emergency department and say they have food poisoning. All right. And you say, when, you know, and how do you know you have food poisoning? Well, the answer is because I ate like within like 12 hours before I got sick. Well, actually, most of the population eats every 12 hours at least. <laughs> and so it doesn't have to be food poisoning. And so it helps if you know if there's like a diarrheal illness, like a norovirus in the community or in the area. And so we're really trying to get some uh, uh, funding together to make us uh, be able to put that information out. So emergency docs can say, hey, you know, there's norovirus all over this place and you don't have food poisoning. So please don't call the poor restaurant and tell them they made you sick, especially if all five of you ate the same food and you're the only one that's sick. And by the way, the other four people you ate with will probably be sick tomorrow. Um, so it's a way for us to know what's in the community and to be able to react with it. Now, back to California. So there are some problem areas in the country where hospitals don't um, participate. Unfortunately, California is one of them. It's very complex um, to understand exactly why. Um, so I'll just leave it for the moment as they don't participate. The other one that, but you're in, you've got some company, um, the other state that doesn't report at all is Oklahoma. Um, now, it's hard to imagine Oklahoma and California in the same sentence on almost anything. I mean, I, I just, I, you know, I just, everything about Oklahoma is the antithesis in California. Whether you're an Oklahoma person or an, a California person, you're not the same. But they also have the same issues around sharing their data. Almost all other states either are sharing their data or are in the process of sharing their data. And ASEP is helping uh, by augmenting some of that data from our own patient registry. Again, all of the, the information about the patient is stripped out and we're just, you know, it's just like a count. This, we got five people with, you know, pneumonia. We got 10 people with diarrhea. We got that type of thing. And so it's not. But any I think it's specific. much more important than that. I mean, yeah, okay, diarrhea and food poisoning, but. Um, we can have a chemical attack. We can have yes. a cluster of overdoses. We can have and, an outbreak of uh, marijuana gummies uh, um, poisoning children like we were having in California. We can see these kind. Of, I think that that type of. Yeah, xylazine. You know, yeah. right. Or knowing when that's coming up, emerging threats, right? And and um, so I think that that's way more important. It's disheartening for me to hear that California is not participating in uh, uh, perhaps ASA, CDC yeah. and the California Department of Public Health can meet because we did meet with the Department of Public Health and got support almost immediately to do OD map 
across the state of California, and we're going to have legislation that puts that in place. And and uh, we'll be joining other country and other not country, other states like Maryland, where over the entire state they have uh, mapping of drug overdoses, so we can intervene. And see, that's the kind of thing that the CDC can actually do for you, uh, and only in multiple with multiple uh, layers, and provide you that data that says how is California or how is this county doing compared to that county in Nevada or Colorado, and then you can look and see. Well, look, this county in Colorado used to have a huge problem with overdoses, but now it's going down. What did they do that maybe Los Angeles could do? Um, and so it's a way of not just not just seeing having the data, which is really important, but being able to look at it and see who's doing what, who's getting worse, who's getting better, and 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 how can I, you know, build off of that knowledge? Um, and intervene. Again, yeah, there's right. no way to identify an individual patient, but there. This is so important to know what's going on and what's coming. And that type of person. Surveillance identifies things like, oh, it's flu season now, or we're having an, you know, uh, upsurge. Um, you mentioned there were several ways we were able to to see associations of infections and other societal issues. Yeah, so uh, Paul Pepe did this really cool project um, several uh, back at the beginning of the pandemic, and what he showed was uh, uh, he runs, uh, he's a pre-hospital paramedic. Uh, Oh, he's not paramedic, but he's a medical director for paramedics. And he, what he showed was just before the COVID illnesses hit at the hospitals. Okay. So just before COVID hit the hospitals, there was a rash of cardiac arrests early on in the pandemic. So this was during the original uh, months of the pandemic. We don't see that anymore uh, for a variety of reasons. We got a different subvariant, et cetera. But it was really fascinating, and, and he showed. So first you would see COVID in the wastewater, then you would see cardiac arrest, then you would see hospitalizations go up. Um, and it's probably the inflammation uh, part of the early infection with the COVID that caused these cardiac arrests in, in vulnerable people. But it would it was good because people could start to gear up and it also gave some information about what was going on with COVID that we otherwise wouldn't have known. Um, so these surveillance things are really, really important. Yeah. And um, let's talk. Let's talk about my favorite topic, marijuana. I say it's my favorite topic because um, it's it's ignored. I've always liked to be, you know, the uh, uh, the stepchild. So early on in my career, I was one of the first people to speak about. Uh, overprescribing opioids. At that time, uh, my colleagues would say, well, you don't have compassion or you're uh, opiophobic or other names. But the reason I persisted and knew that I was right is because I talked to parents whose children died of our prescriptions. And now I see the same thing. And the saddest podcast I ever had was a group of uh, moms who've lost their children to marijuana, to marijuana-induced yeah. psychosis, marijuana-induced suicide, um, and I and I see the gap in knowledge within my colleagues yes. um, because this is new, and uh, it, it's not about legalization or whether it should be legal, not legal. 
that, that cat's out of the bag. It's all over the place. Whether you want to make it legal or not, it doesn't matter. It's out there. And we as physicians need to be able to recognize when someone's in the emergency department three times because of internal bleeding and realize that, oh, you're using marijuana and Plavix. Well, those two, two don't go together. That's a drug interaction. Yeah. Or um, uh, many different drug interactions. I, I had a patient the other day who was dizzy and weak. They just started using CBD. And I said, well, I tell them, get out your phone, take out your phone and look it up for yourself. I don't, I don't even do it for you. I said, you take out your phone, go to drugs.com, uh, put, look in the in, drug interaction checker, put in cannabidiol, that means CBD. Now put in your blood pressure medicine and then just read for yourself. And they're like, I paid $150 for these CBDs. I was told that this is safe. It's like, I'm sorry. But, you know, there are, uh, we talk about drug interactions that affect the liver for Paxlovid, for so many other medications. We can't ignore it for THC and, and CBD. And there's a lot more. I, I think I, I'm up to three stroke codes where we do the whole stroke thing. And at the end of the day, the MRI and CAT scans and everything is normal. And it's a person who took a gummy or used a lot of marijuana. Um, and um, I think that that information needs to be out there. To my horror, I heard an emergency physician say to their patients when they have cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, that instead of smoking marijuana, they should go to using gummies. Like We can't be saying that to our patients without understanding the risks, a, a gummy has more THC content than the smoke product. It doesn't yeah. go to your lung. It goes to GR, GI tract. But, you know, we need to, like we did for tobacco cessation. I'm actually going to write something. This is my goal for the year. I'm going to write a marijuana cessation um, guide for patients like we have for tobacco. So, you know, it's it's people can quit and and have a healthier life if they want to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. I mean, um, you know, I grew up in the 60s. Um, what can I say? And, you know, back then, you know, people would smoke a marijuana cigarette, uh, cigarette or re we called them reefers back then, you know, but but they were low. They were low. potency. Um, yeah, they low toxicity. And most people, you know, did one and then they were done for the night type thing. Um and, you know, it, there was like this huge scare, you know, people reefer madness movies. You know, if you smoke a marijuana cigarette, you're going to use heroin next. Um, <clears throat> and most of the people in the 60s sort of said, oh, come now. You know, if I smoke a marijuana cigarette, I don't think that the next day I go out and would shoot heroin. I mean, it just it, that wouldn't probably happen. So I think because of that, there was this sort of. um a change in attitude like that marijuana is totally safe and it isn't there is no drug on the face of the earth that's totally safe and it has real problems just as you uh just as you said the biggest problem for me to from that i see are the kids that get a hold of the gummies and the kids that get a hold of their parents stuff and for children to take that is really really a problem it's not you know, uh, just at the, oh, look, he's, how funny he is, he's high type thing, which I've heard from my friends. Um, but it's, um, it, it's really a, a very dangerous drug. So the first thing that I would say, I know you, you were talking about the adults taking, but the first thing I would say is make sure your kids can't get your gummies if you're using them. And then, you know, like, 
you know, that if you have a side effect, it's probably the gummy or it's the CBD. It's probably not, you know, you suddenly became um, allergic to your blood pressure medicine. Um, it's probably the new thing that you started. So these are not totally safe drugs. And just like with any other drug, you should expect side effects. And these can be very serious and dangerous. Right. I, I do I do see a, a, a gap or opportunity to educate the medical community on how to respond and how to recognize um, uh, the, the these illnesses. And uh, if any physicians are recommending it, they need to be held accountable to the standard of medical care. You cannot recommend aspirin or Tylenol or amoxicillin without following a standard of care. Um, and we're held accountable for that. We would lose our license if we did anything you know, differently than that. And, and the same thing if you're going to be recommending um, any of these other uh, other products as well. Yeah, and again, otherwise you know, we don't need medical schools. I was going to write an article like that. Let's just get rid of the medical schools because why do we need them? People like just prescribe for themselves. Well, uh, these days I, I am impressed at how much medical knowledge there is from Dr. Google um, and Dr. Google's medical degree. I understand is is not valid. Um, I don't think he ever went to medical school. But I've had people actually argue with me, not not necessarily about marijuana, but something they read on Google or they read on the internet. Uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, the COVID vaccines and that type of stuff, but they'll be like, no, you're wrong. And I'll be like, no, I'm right. I'm sorry. I'm right. Oh, the ER doctor, for, yeah. who's an academician who's written all these textbooks and did all this research and teaches like, like right, exactly. It's like, okay, yeah. well, let's just get rid of the medical school. We don't need doctors anymore. Yeah, we don't need doctors. Dr. Google will tell you all. I'm sure you've had the patient come in that tells you they have like, you know, leishmaniasis or something like that because which is an incredibly rare disease and doesn't really occur in the United States. I did my research as an 18-year-old on leishmaniasis. <laughs> You're reading my mind, but I did yes. a Middle yes. Eastern problem. So I, I did my a little I did research on it. And so they come in and they say I have it because I have, you know, I have headaches and dizziness and my muscles I, get. I actually have a different approach when patients come to me and, and and they say that they're afraid of something or they read something. I said, well, tell me more about it because then I get into their brain and I'll say, show me where you read it. And then I could counter that or explain that. And it's like, well, that's really good, but you don't have this or this or that. Yeah. Right. So I, I had a guy in the middle of the pandemic when we were censoring people. A guy who said, you know, I have all these symptoms. He had a whole list of symptoms and, and I, and I posted it on my Instagram and, and then the government deleted it because it was, they said I was, uh, uh, you know, did co fear of COVID and the vaccine. He goes, but I, but I took a picture of it. And I said, well, show, show me the picture and show me your screenshot. And I read it and I read his long list of symptoms. And it's like, why, why did Instagram or whoever, you know, Snapchat, you know, censor this guy is just a guy listing a bunch of his symptoms. And he thought it was related to the vaccine. It wasn't. But I was able to explain to him, you know, he actually ended up having cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I actually like and sometimes people Google things and they're right. And I tell them you're right. Yeah, they are right. But, yeah. you know, it, 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 there's this, there's this missing filter. And, and I often find it uh, quite amusing, particularly when they pick out something that is like, so rare and probably can't happen or they they come up with you know i have a disease and you're like but well, that only happens in people over the age of 70 and you're 16 um you know we're fine here uh it you know it i think google has provided a terrific resource for people 
Um, but again, you know, before they decide that they have something absolutely horrible, it's good to check with the doc um, because or that's why we get medicines medicine. or supplements and make sure they don't interact. Yes. Yes. Right. Violence. Oh. Uh, we call 911 from our emergency department about four times a month. And we have a security whole system and, and stuff. It's a problem. And it's a problem in our profession. What's ASEP doing about it? So funny you should mention that because I just was looking at the final draft of a whole new website we have on workplace violence. Um, we are taking all of our policies, uh, which include things like the emergency department should be a, a gun-free zone. I mean, there should be no firearms or weapons in the emergency department. You want to carry them outside? That's fine. But don't bring them in into um my house, basically. Um, it also includes things like uh, how to work. And also security. for law enforcement, because I want them to have a gun. Okay. Law enforcement is a different thing. Law enforcement is very different. But they're, you know, but having uh, having someone particularly, uh, you know, that is uh, in this day and age, bring weapons into the emergency department is probably just not a great idea. I used to have that rule. Uh, uh, there was a time in my life when I was an internist and I had an office in Eastern Kentucky, <laughs> Eastern Kentucky. And I had a rule, you check your guns with the receptionist. I don't see people who have guns on just, I just, you know, first off they get in the way second, they get dropped and, you know, God knows I'd probably end up firing one if I tried to grab it. That was more for everybody's protection. But there's also some other uh, options for uh, people. Most of the violence in the emergency department is not gun violence. No, most of the violence is not. It's physical violence. And it's about training security. It's about learning to de-escalate the situation. It's about learning how to keep yourself safe. One of the first things I learned was always place myself between the patient and the door so that I had the first egress out the door. Um, again, I'm a, a relatively, you know, short person. And at one point in my life was actually small. Sandy. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not a physically imposing person. Um, and, you know, I, you know, violence is real. I've been hit. I've had a knife pulled on me twice. Um, and, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a person that can easily, um, uh, you know, I don't look physically imposing. Um, I'm not as thin as I used to be, but I'm still not physically imposing. Penalties. What about when yes. we, we wanted to have the same amount? Like if you hit a police officer, law enforcement officer, there's consequences to that. What about making those same consequences for assaulting a health care provider? Yeah, we. I think that would be absolutely excellent. I also think this comes on to the... Um, uh, person themselves, the, the person in the emergency department. You know, uh, my generation thinks that um, getting hit or having violence in the emergency department is normal, part of part of life. It isn't. It isn't something we should tolerate. It isn't something that the police should say, oh, it's just the emergency department. You know, it's a real fine line between you know, the mentally ill who strike out and the person who is violent and strikes out. Um, and it, it's often hard to discern what it is. Um, so I, I really think uh, emergency personnel. Or, or, even, or even drugs, right? There, yeah. There's a line there. We're there to help you, um, you know, detox, withdraw, get treatment, treat every medical condition that you have with um, out stigma, with compassion, um, but the line is drawn when we're kicked in the face, right? Yes. 
the line is drawn when the violence starts. And at that point, we have to uh, prevent the harm, not just to ourselves, but to our coworkers. I mean, it's the emergency physician's responsibility to make sure that everyone in that room is safe and that no one uh, gets injured, including the patient. Um, and yes, we do it with compassion, but at some point we have to step back and, and you know, take care, uh, prevent the injury to the patient, prevent the injury to the, to the staff. Right. And themselves. Yeah. Right. So um, with that, it's funny, we're talking about all these horrible, <laughs> tough things, and yet we start the conversation, and we're going to end the conversation with how much we love emergency medicine, but um, emergency medicine did have a really tough year. Um, yeah. We used to be the, when I, when I came into emergency medicine, right after you, you're the mother of emergency medicine, you established the, uh, the specialty, I came right on your tailcoats saying still like kind of the, the the specialty was built, but I'm like, I still was part of a new specialty. There was, there was no emergency medicine in Texas. None. I went, I actually trained in Texas and went to California because they didn't have anything in Texas. Um, so I felt as a new profession, you know, nobody else was choosing it. And after the show ER, we became really popular and it was really tough. And only the top of the top of the class would get into emergency medicine. And last year we were on the bottom. Yes. That yeah. Is and Paul was really fast, really, really fast. I mean, it's been like two, three years. Um, so a couple of things. First off, when I uh, went, when I was looking for residency, my mentor said to me, you should be an emergency physician. And I said, well, are there any residencies? And he said, no. And I said, well, are there any jobs? And he said, no, but don't worry, there will be. Um, and so I, I don't mentor. think about that. It was really very funny. Um, now the court, your mentor, huh? Who was my mentor? Peter Saffer, the guy who developed CPR as we know it, um, and is a, a major. You know, if you if you do mouth to mouth, you are doing it because Peter uh, was the first to study that and train and etc. So yeah, he was a he was a very a very interesting man and and really made a major difference. He and Ron Stewart who was the father of EMS medicine, were my men, two major mentors. And I, uh, Peter's deceased, but Ron is still around and wonderful. Uh, anyhow, that was a walk down memory lane, sorry. Um, so uh, I, anyhow, um, I completely lost where we were going now that you made me think why about we, it. Why, oh, why the match? So, 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 yeah. so what has happened is that we have enlarged the number of slots um, tremendously. Um, there has been a, a major growth. Now, first part of that is there are new residencies and there's a lot of controversy around that. But 50% of the problem is current residencies, some very old and established residencies that have increased their um, allotment. So maybe they used to have 10 residents a year, now they have 12, maybe they had 12, maybe they have 18. And so they've increased it. So half of this problem is really from people just enlarging their residencies. And the other part of the problem is that everyone, everyone believes their residency program is, is good and amazing and they shouldn't be the one that closes or whatever. So the first step that ASEP took, knowing that this was coming, I mean, eventually, if you keep increasing the pot, eventually it's going to boil over. There will not be jobs. And so about four or five years ago, we got together with all of the other specialties in emergency medicine and began studying this. 
uh, all of the organizations, or almost all the organizations, there were two that didn't, um, joined with us to, to put out a workforce study. And in it, we showed that if we keep going the way we're going, there will be a surplus of emergency physicians uh, in the next 10 years or so. And now, interestingly, now that there is a surplus, or not a surplus, now that the match went down, everybody says, well, ASAP shouldn't have done that. So the first piece is ASAP just didn't do it by itself. Everybody joined together. And the second is, if we hadn't have said there was going to be a problem, would, would that have been better to just have the problem? Um, so what needs to happen? Well, the, we're looking at well, this. Well, I think the other thing that happened was COVID, and we were firing ER doctors. Yes. And it didn't take long for the medical students to realize what they're firing ER doctors. We can't get a job. I'm not going to go into emergency medicine. Yeah. Back to my, back to Peter's statement. Are there any jobs? No. Um, so the, the really um, interesting thing about this is we've looked at it from a number of st standpoints. What can we do to lower the number of residencies? So everybody says, oh, we should just close residencies. It's not that simple. Again, everybody believes theirs is the best. Um, and we just, ASEP has no control over this. It's all part of a group called the ACGME. And the ACGME, because of Federal Trade Commission uh, concerns, will not close uh, uh, residencies or stop opening them just because there's a potential surplus, just because we don't need them. So need has nothing to do with it. And so they will continue to um add residencies and add residency spots as long as there's an educational standard that is met. So what's left to us? Let's raise the standard. So we got all the organizations together again and a whole bunch of other people. And we said, let's raise the standards. Um, that seems appropriate. And everybody, so we would say, well, why don't we do this? And they would say, oh, we can't do that because in my place, we could never meet that standard. And my place is a good place. And right. then we'd say, well, let's do this. And they'd say, well, we can't do that because that, that's my place. So eventually we got everybody to agree that we needed to raise the standards and yes, it was gonna hurt their programs and yes, it wasn't gonna be easy and some of their programs might end up closing. And when we came to that agreement, we've now sent those recommendations to the ACGME and hopefully they will raise the standards to make it harder uh, for existing residencies and new residencies to happen because that's the only way yeah. that we can do that with. The standards are important, right? So you need to be able to do so many intubations, so many chest tubes, so many of these procedures. And if you're not getting that in your training, right? I mean, think right. about my husband's a dentist. If you can't do so, they, so they have the same thing. So many crowns, so many cavities, so many extractions. Uh, you have to get under your belt before you can graduate dental school, yeah. uh, right? And so those, when people are listening standards, that's what we need. You got to be able to know how to do that. And if you don't have the volume, then how are you going to train those doctors? So you mentioned intubation. So we uh, currently, our, our rules are you have to do 10 intubations, but the literature would suggest that you don't get really good until you do 80. And so we said, let's do 80. And again, you know, there were some very good programs that are saying, ah, can't do 80. I'd never be able to do 80. I think I got 80. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And so, you know, we came up, uh, but, but that's piece number one. The second piece, taking a page out of the book that the um, uh, anesthesiologists did when they had this issue, we said, what, what are the things that emergency physicians can do? We're incredible. I mean, we understand every other specialty 
in emergency or in the hospital in in medicine you know we interact with all of them oh. we i used to say we speak in the surgeon. middle of the night <laughs> yeah we speak surgeon we speak pediatrician we make amazing administrators and so abem or the board is now creating a subspecialty in administrative medicine and they're going to be giving an exam in the next few years hopefully and people can certify in administrative medicine because that's what we're really good at as well as take saving lives um, and then, you know, we're also looking at what about telemedicine? You know, what about telehealth? What about uh, work in government service like you did? I mean, right? We're great at that because we we understand regulations, systems. We understand you can't, the words, you can't do that. And we find a way to do it, even though they say you can't do it that way. We say, okay, well, then what way can I do it? As opposed to, right? <laughs> That's what we do. No, it's just a suggestion. We just have to figure out the way, right? I don't want to know all the ways I can't do something. I want to figure out the way I can do something. Right. And a lot of people stop when they say, you can't do that. Emergency docs are like, okay, I can't do it that way. I'll just find another way. Because that's what we that's what we end up doing. You know, if this didn't work on the patient, then we'll find another way to take care of that patient. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, I think, we are talking about enlarging the scope of our practice and what we do. We've also come down very hard on the scope of practice for nurse uh, practitioners and uh, physician assistants. And I have to tell you, there was a real article written by a group of nurse practitioners who agreed with us, who said, you know, these are undifferentiated patients. It's different when you're taking care of a patient that you know about and so we have come down and say, you know, nurse practitioners and PAs largely need to be supervised, need to have a doc that they can contact, need to have a doc to, and to help. Undifferentiated, just to explain to my audiences, you can come in, I, I probably for the most extreme is I came in, a uh, patient came in because their finger hurt. But yet in that same visit, I made the diagnosis of appendicitis. So yeah. what people come in with is not always what they have. And that's where you know, the skill of emergency medicine comes in. Yeah, it's, it's that, what does it, I always play, what doesn't fit in this picture, right? You know, so if everything fits, then it's appendicitis, but they come in with their finger. I had one uh, poor woman who came in because she said she'd hurt her shoulder bowling and her shoulder was massively swollen. And I just have never seen a massively swollen shoulder Except in, you know, major, major, even in major traumas, you don't see these gigantic, you know, it was just from bowling. And so she ended up having um, uh, sepsis um, and unfortunately later died, uh, but, you know, could easily have been sent home because, you know, I, I hurt my shoulder bowling. I mean, right. Right, right, right. That's where it takes to to, yeah. to look into. So, more. so we think that you know they 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 certainly play a role. They're very talented individuals, uh, but they 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 don't have the training that we do, and so we need to be there just to say, excuse me, that shoulder just doesn't you know that that's not that's not a bowling. That's not from bowling. And yet, they're wonderful partners. We have physician assistants and nurse practitioners in our emergency department. We work great together. But in our emergency department, we work in a partnership. We we work yeah. collaboratively. Um, um, the other place emergency medicine ranks low now, sadly, is burnout. Um, also affecting the desire of uh, of our young. I have two daughters in medical school. They don't want to do emergency medicine. <laughs> I, I, um, but uh, I, I think that that they know that. I think that that's part of their 
reason of not choosing that? What are, what are we doing about that? We're, we're there as yeah. far as all the medical specialties were kind of number one on burnout, not what where we want to be. Right. So uh, my old boss used to say, you can't burn out if you've never been on fire. Uh, but we all were on fire. I mean, that we're not the person who's who's, you know, just been burned out since day one. We all were on fire and we were on fire through COVID. And it just it was just overwhelming. Most of the burnout, I personally think, has nothing to do with the job, nothing to do with you know what we are trained to do. Um but has to do with the workplace. It has to do with the boarding. It has to do with the uh, shortages. It has to do with all of this. The insurance the is not paying you. Yeah, insurance is not paying you. At worrying, all. About, okay, right. worrying about your debt. That that if we took if we took the borders out of the emergency department and made you know gave the ED enough nursing staff. I think the amount of people who would burn out would be extremely low. I think just having that, you know, there, there used to be this rule that you couldn't eat or drink when you were on a shift. And I described this to the people at ASAP. I said, you know, you come in for an eight hour shift and you can't eat or drink for that eight hours. Uh, and they said, what do you mean you can't eat or drink for eight hours? I said, well, there's, you know, you can't leave and you're not allowed to eat in the emergency department. And they said, I can't go eight hours without eating or drinking. And I said, yeah, it makes you kind and of like not going to the bathroom also because <laughs> yeah, well, we we I did go there because I wanted to describe, I did describe to a couple of people what it's like to end your shift and suddenly realize you've been holding it for six hours. And then you're like in the bathroom for like five minutes, right? And you're like, oh my God, my bladder. But you know, so ASAP sat down and said, Why can't you eat and drink? And they said, Oh, you know, it's joint commission. So we went to the joint commission. They said, it's not us. And then we went to OSHA. They said, it's not us. You can eat and drink. So we put it out there. Well, you can eat and drink on your shift. Sounds like a stupid thing, right? To say yeah. in this. Could you imagine saying to somebody who worked in? I think a thank you goes a long way if we, you know, changed our culture of being, you know, things, you know, like on the airplane. Everybody's thanking you on the airplane, right? But you like just did CPR and you did this stroke code and, you know, suture this nasty wound. and then. Uh, you know, uh, and it's just a given. We don't, I think gratitude, uh, yeah. medical professionals get gratitude in, in their job. And we, by nature of our business, don't. I think that that's hard. Yeah. And, you know, we, we rarely get thank yous. We rarely see the end of the story. I always say, I, you know, I start the story. I, I, I start, the, I write the first chapter and then we don't often see them. I remember um, I've, I've had a couple of cases where patients have come back and said, you, I understand you were the doctor that saved my life. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you lived. Um, because we don't even know who lives and dies. You know, we, we get them back and we send them off to the ICU and we have no idea um, often what happens to them. Um, and I think it's a really good thing to have people, you know, just say, thanks guys. So um, Sandy, what do you want the rest of the high truths audience to know about emergency medicine? It has been such an amazing career. Uh, first off, we have the best stories. So just don't invite one of us for dinner because we will dominate the conversation. Um, it, we, we, what we do is really special. Um, and what, you know, our contribution is so unnoticed. 
I think the big thing is if any of you are involved with hospitals or maybe on boards or know people who are on boards, ask them about the boarding situation because that's what's killing us now. And ask them if, if they walked in the emergency department. And if you're waiting for treatment because you cut yourself, I'm sorry, but there are people back there whose lives are in danger and a lot of inpatients taking up the rooms and we're doing the best we can. How's that? That is wonderful. So I want to say thank you to Janelle, our young emergency physician, uh, Dr. Sauerbeer, how fun to work with a high energy, dedicated emergency medicine resident with a lot of passion for the profession. Thank you for your question. And remember, you are a hero and you save lives every single shift. Um, we take it for granted as we talked about, um, but I want to say thank you to you and remind you that you make a difference and you save lives every shift. And thank you. Dr. Sandy Schneider for your work on behalf of the American College of Emergency Physician, on behalf of physicians and patients around our entire nation who come to the emergency department when they're most vulnerable and in need. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Renee, for inviting me. I really appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Mm-hmm.